Hello and welcome to Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers by writers to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. I'm Billy. I'm Gabe. I'm Marie. And I'm Will. And somehow that actually worked out. I love it. All right. Uh, We're back again for episode two of our Six of Crows chat. Um, I'm just, look, I'm stoked to see what we come up with this hour. So, Will, what do we got? What are we doing? Do the thing. So, in our last episode, we really talked a lot about what um, structure we looked at the book at, whether it was a three-act structure, a seven-point plot point. And we also talked about how the two could almost be uh, joined based on the characters, as well as the overreaching plot. We talked about what our favorite characters were, but we also talked about the craft of not making your characters perfect and of talking about uh, some of the characters and their attributes and their flaws. So I really want to open this up first because we kind of touched upon it thanks to uh, Marshall last uh, episode that we had for the Six of Crows book club. I want to talk about world building first. I want to talk about, you know, Marshall had um, mentioned in the previous episode how that the setting of Ketterdam was just such a a character. And the Ice Palace is um, a setting that has such character. So I want to go around and I want to start um, with Marie. And Marie, I want to ask you, what was the favorite part of the book that you felt was the most amazing as far as world building. Mm. I I think, well, this, hopefully I'm not stealing your answer, Marshall, because I think this is part of what you were talking right, about last episode right. about <laughs> like that seedy underbelly, you know? Yeah. Um, I think it would be really easy to just sort of have a, ah, yes, that's the underworld of Ketterdam. But the fact that we got personalities of the different clubs, the different gambling halls, the pleasure halls, they all had their own aesthetic. They all had their own um, leaders with their own agendas. Um, And they all had their own levels of wealth. Um, Some were positioned, you know, closer to the touristy areas. Some were, uh, you know, having to pull people in deeper through various, uh, you know, uh, probably illegal means. <laughs> um, and so I think just the fact that we got different personalities of of them was just, to me, the mark of like next level world building within Ketterdam's underground. A hundred percent. Anyone else can think of a moment that you felt like the world building was just like you were blown away by. Marshall? Well, and, and to build on that, like as far as the people running the various organizations um, there early on in the book, there's that standoff um, where the two, where they, where the two groups meet and, and that speaks volumes for how that, that how Ketterdam runs. Right. It's like, all right, we know our, we're struggling for power here. Who is really gonna, you know, who's going to pull the trigger here? Who's, who's, you know, who's going to get a leg up out of this. And I think, you know, and and you don't need to know every single it's implied right that there are more than just these gangs and stuff running this city and i think that it's really speaks volumes to the world building when you can talk about a couple of incidents and a couple of groups 
and know that there's so much more out there and you can bring more in. I think that says a lot about an, uh, an author and their world building because as a fantasy lover, someone who loves to read fantasy and loves these, these little nuances in, in the world or in a city or in a, in a continent or whatever, you know, you don't have to lay it all out. You know, it's going to be there at some point and it's not going to be like, well, where'd this gang come from? You know, there are other gangs. You just haven't seen them yet. So I think that's really, um, she does a really good job of laying that out, especially in that first little standoff scene. A hundred percent. Um, Nick, you had something to add. Yeah. I really like the prison. Like when they set that <laughs> up, I don't know why I was like, Oh, this is badass. There's ice everywhere. Let's do this. Like, <laughs> I, I don't know. It re- like, it really sung to me. Like it's like the in Star Wars Hoth. I really thought Hoth was an unexplored region that we didn't get enough of, and for whatever reason, I feel like I'm attracted to icy things when it comes to world building and planets. So, but the the prison was amazing. Uh, I thought that was really well done, really well thought out as far as structure goes and processes goes on procedures. So, really, really well done by Lee. You know, it's interesting that you say that is in the fact that like you have come from a military background. A lot of the stories that I've read that you uh, wrote really encapsulate some type of um, structure where someone has to break into it. And it's really like haunting. So just from you saying that, I already see that in your own work. Um, Gabe, you had something you wanted to add. Yeah. So I'm thinking related to something Marshall said about like how you can see there's so much more outside of Caterdam and the other places. And I think the connection between the countries felt super real. Like honestly, the, the last thing that I read that was this well done, and it's going to be in like my top three next to Six of Crows is in the Greenbone saga that you can see the globalization. I mean, also given because of the technology, but you can feel like there's even hints at diaspora of different groups in the cities and in different countries. I think that was brilliant. And in a, from a craft perspective, this is all seen through character. You can see the opinions of people, of other peoples, and it's it, there's never like an info dump, really, like to show us these things. And I have an example of a craft, not really from the countries, but a little craft thing that I found that it's doing like super double duty and it's here. It's when they get to the to the prison, and it says the vast glass enclosure, quarter mile long, could fit into a trading ship. Like this is telling us how big the trading ships are, while giving us an idea of how big the glass enclosure is. So that's that was super sneaky in a brilliant way, and I think that that was so good. Absolutely, um, Billy. So I, I want to, um, I agree with everything that everybody said, but I think that one of the things she does amazingly well is naming, um, not just the characters, but also, I mean, just like the groups we've talked about the gangs and I'm just going to list a couple of the gang names, black tips, Harley's pointers, the Liddies, the razor goals, the dime lions. I mean, like every single one of those names just makes you, they're like, they feel so real and, and, um, it, it just, she just did a great job. The other thing that I thought was amazing world building was the uh, comedy Brute, where she had these characters that, and these like, um, these sort of uh, 
um, what's the word I'm looking for, like celebrations or rituals or something that kind of went along with that. And um, that just felt so real. Like the, the fact that they're throwing, like, I can't even remember it exactly, but they're throwing coins and people have, you know, they're reciting right, things right. back and forth to each other. And you have these like archetypal characters in that world. And that was just so, that was really cool. And it was cool how she used it uh, in the plot as well. They all served the plot too. So pretty masterful. And I think Marie also in the chat said that in the whole Hellgate scene was nuts. Mm-hmm. So Marie, do you want to talk about that Hellgate scene? Sure. I mean, I think you're right, Billy. And I think maybe this goes back to something you said in the previous episode, Gabe, about like nothing's wasted, right? Because like we see the stuff about the, the comedy. I read it with like a Brit or a French accent, like brute or something, but, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that, you know, sure. That's like some flavor. And that's maybe what I would do is like a beginning career writer, you know, is like, sure, I've got some world building flavor. But the fact that they used it as their in to get to sneak in. Um, and I'm guessing that was something you probably enjoyed, Nick, if you like having like infiltration scenes, because there were like two of them in this, which were both so cool. And it was, I think the other thing that was nice about Hellgate is not nice, it was disturbing, but like nice for plot structure wise was like, A, you get to see like extra why Pekka Rollins is awful and why Kaz hates him so much because it was Pekka's idea to do this whole um, like fight to the death thing among the prisoners just for the enjoyment of the wealthy. Um, Just, you know, total, (laughs) I mean, Hellgate's a perfect word for this place. Right. Um, But also we get to see um, breaking in to a prison with like a lower level, uh, threat, you know, that like we kind of get a feel of what's going to happen so that when we actually get to the ice court, we can run a lot faster because we've already seen them in action a little bit. Yeah, I agree with almost everything. I agree with everything everyone said as far as like um, setting and world building. But I'm going to give you something that really spoke to me about world building. And um, I'm going to just read you a little section. And it is on chapter 10. It's Inej. And there was a Suli saying, the heart is an arrow. It demands aim to land true. Her father had liked to recite this when he was training on the wire or the swings. Be decisive, he'd say. You have to know when you want to go before you get there. Her mother had laughed at this. That's not what that means, she'd say. You take the romance out of everything. He hadn't, though. Her father had adored her mother. Inez remembered him leaving little bouquets of wild geraniums for her mother to find everywhere. In the cupboards, the camp cook pots, the sleeves of her costumes. It was this little excerpt that Inej was instantly connecting with the memory of her family and love. And you could just picture that moment in your head. You know, it makes you, for me, it makes me think of a ch- of being a kid and just having these distinct memories of my father. So a lot of times when people think of world building, or when we talk of world building, we're always talking about something fantastical or, or you know, it felt so real. But in that moment, we know we're not in our world. 
But there's so many identifying variables by taking something that the character feels personal, which makes it universal, which I really liked. So my next part is I want to talk about dialogue. And I want to talk about um, if there was any dialogue in the story that you felt really showed the character um, speaking, but still pushed the story forward. Um, Can anyone think of anything of some of the dialogue in the story, or I can start if everyone would like. I mean, oh, go ahead, I, don't, I, I don't have like example. I have some examples of dialogue, but yeah. not precisely with like pushing the story forward. I, I yeah. suppose they do. But what I would like to say is that the dialogue is like one of the best that I've read lately. It's so, so good. And even when there's like six or seven characters on screen, Lee goes without name tags without the dialogue tags for 15, 16 instances. And you can see, I mean, you can see it's the two characters, but she has no need because of how they speak. And I think that's brilliant. And the banter, I just soaked that in. It was so, so good. It, and it drove, like it drove the conflict, but it also drove the relationships forward or backwards with amazing fun and like very evocative of the character. So I think that was one of the best things that I enjoyed of this book. Yeah. Go ahead, Marshall. Well, and that's something I actually noticed because I, I actually listened to this on Audible and I, I'm i always aware, like, because I've read, well, I've listened to like John Scalzi novels, for example. Um, and if you've ever read anything by Scalzi, he has dialogue tags almost every single line. And on Audible, it gets really interesting to listen to, especially at the speed out of the thing. It's like, he said, she said, he said, she said. But Gabe, you're absolutely right. Like, there are moments I'm like, I know who's speaking. I know who's speaking, but she hasn't tagged them, right? Um, and going back to that scene I was talking about earlier, that scene, um, that confrontation between the two gangs, that dialogue between Kaz and, and, and was it Pekka, right? Um, uh, was it Pekka? Refresh my memory. It was someone else, or was it Pekka? Um, someone from the Diamond, uh, the other gang. I can't remember. This shows how long ago it's been. But anyway, but Kaz speaking then, though, um, that conversation was also an element of world building, right? Um, because you get a sense for the power struggle within the dialogue itself. I can't remember who he was speaking to, but that same confrontation. But someone else. Marie, did you want to add something? I, I just had an example of what y'all were talking about, especially with the whole like, you know, there's multiple people talking, but you can tell exactly who they are. Mm-hmm. Um, right around chapter 28, just before um, into chapter 28. So it starts with Inej. Nina and I can get inside. We enter with a menagerie. You know, those costumes, a heavy cloaks, hoods, that's all the Fjordans will see. It's a risk, said Kaz. What job isn't? Kaz, how are you and Matthias going to get through? We might need you for locks. And if things go bad on the island, I don't want to be stranded. I doubt you can pass yourselves off as members of the menagerie. That shouldn't be a problem. Helvar's been holding out on us. Have you? It's not. How do you know these things, Dimjin? Logic. The whole ice cord is a masterpiece of fail-safes and doubled systems. Yeah. That's an excellent example of the dialogue. Yeah. It just makes you want to move forward, which you can find this all throughout the book. Um, So I want to ask everyone, this is kind of more of a 
a fun question. Um, who was your favorite side character that you wanted to know more about or loved a scene? They were on stage. Go do ahead. Wanna, do we want to define side character? Or are we talking about people? Of the- Someone who's not of the crows. Anyone who hey. isn't a crow. I got you. I think I would say Pekka Rollins. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Both before we know who he is, like in Kaz's past, and then when we see him at the end, I think he is. So I don't know what's going to happen there for the people that have read it, but I'm, I'm waiting so much to see what he's going to do because now he's painted like as the evil, like as the evil guy during this book, but it, I don't get the sense that he's going to be that for the next book. So I think he has so much going on and we see him, we just see him mentioned like physically we see him maybe in three chapters. So I think that's, that was really well done. Very, very efficient way of showing the character from all the opinions of the characters in the, the crows. I really actually wanted to see more of the, um, menagerie. Mm. Um, and, and the women girls who are in there, because I feel like there's another story also. Like, I think this is what's really interesting about Lee's writing. She creates these little pockets that's like dribbles of things, but like, you know, she could go in so much more just in the same way, how she briefly touches upon Alina, Sancta Alina. Mm-hmm. in the story that you know there's a story there and if you didn't read the first three it's okay but she puts Sancta Alina in it and the mention of her and there's a whole story behind it and I think there's these subtleties that is really great um, of a craft wise because these are things that as writers sometimes we dream up these places and we have all these backstories but we can't put them all in But so how can we add depth to our writing and alluding to a bigger world. And I feel like the menagerie is is somewhere where there could be multiple stories being told. Yeah, go ahead, Marie. I uh, totally agree about the menagerie. And the other one that's uh, feels related to that for me was um, these other players in Kaz's backstory with, uh, we've done his name, um, but I'm having trouble finding it in my notes. But um, basically the, the ones who take in Kaz and Jordy and yeah. fool them, but it wasn't just, uh, whatever the, the name was that the guy was, uh, Mr. Hertzoon. It wasn't just Mr. If, if anyone hasn't, I'm just saying that for uh, spoiler purposes, I'm assuming probably people have listened to this. I've read the book, but, yeah. um, but there were other players involved in that. Like, what was that whole story about? You know, how did they get involved in this con? Yeah. I would also, let's talk about, um, did anyone have any favorite internal struggles, like any internal struggle scene in the book that they really loved or really spoke to them? Or can you think of any of the internal struggles that we saw the characters go through that either you really loved, you identified with, and then you thought to yourself, wow, that's really good craft right there. How can I bring that in my story? And we'll start off with Gabe and then Billy. Gabe? So I'm thinking mostly of Matthias. And the I think the scene that most hit me from his point of view was when he is when they're running like above the the training, the training room where he used to train. And like when he's having this 
trouble of being home, but not really. I think I suffered that part with him. That that was very poignant. This is that he really like he was home, but he couldn't be there really. He was physically there, but not with his his country and how he sees those places. And he was about to just go run to his his teachers or his people to just betray them because he saw his past there. And uh, I have like five things here that Matthias does like in three chapters. Like uh, just after this, he's considering shooting Kaz. Mm -hmm. And then he is with Brom after caging Nina. And then he goes with Kaz again. So I think Matthias, as we, I think we mentioned that in the previous episode of how he is the grayest character and the one that has the most choices to make. Everyone has, but Matthias's are like the most with most conflict inside him. Yeah. Um, Billy. So I'm like on the fence about whether to talk about um, Kaz or Jesper, but I think that uh, Jesper's struggle with owning being a Grisha, Grisha was, uh, was a pretty interesting arc as well. An interesting internal struggle. And, um, and it kind of spills over into, into Crooked Kingdom as well, but it, um, it just, it was compelling to me because it felt like, and, and I don't know, I love the world building aspect that if you don't use your power as a Grisha, you're, uh, you get sick in some way, you know? And I think that, um, the argument that Jesper's sickness comes from that is just, it's so wonderful. Um, and, and this shows up kind of in like shadow and bone a bit as well, but, um, that was just so compelling to me. And, it, and, it, and I think it's like using your power in a lot of ways. It's like, for me, mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, this is like me. If I don't write, you know what I mean? This is me if I'm not creating and uh, I get like sick. And um, so I thought that that was just that internal struggle was so real. It was so cool. You know, um, Marie just put something in it. Um, she says, it's so queer. I love it. Do you want to talk? Do you want to expand upon that Marie? I mean, I love that perspective, Billy, right. About like, if we're not creating, we're, we're kind of withering, you know? Um, and I was thinking about it from the perspective of the previous episode where we were talking about that moment when Matthias, back in the flashback, says to Nina, like, it's unnatural. The Grisha are unnatural. And to me, that maps onto, um, like, queer phobia as one of, I mean, there's so many interpretations, right? But, like, that's something that comes up for me. Um, but what you're saying there too, right? Like, if you, if you shove it down, if you shove down this part of yourself, um, you're going to get sick, you know, and that is directly opposed to in the same way with the Grisha, um, you know, the Grisha are seen as tools or lesser than, or there's actually a coming out moment for Jesper with his Grisha ability. Um, and actually, I guess a couple of them um, in the book, because coming out isn't like a one-time thing you know it happens for your whole life um so yeah to me that mapped on like really well yeah and i um both of you come up with some really strong points and um i know billy we talked earlier when you mentioned about like if you're not creative when you're a creative person and you're not being able to be creative there's you get sick you know like you there's this need to create there's this need to be an artist, you know, and I think that spills over a lot in this book. Go ahead, Marshall. Well, also, I think it depends on 
why you're not being creative too. And this goes to what Jesper is dealing with because why isn't he using it? Well, because of the world around him, right? Why aren't people coming out? Why aren't, you know what I mean? Like, why am I not creating? Am I not creating because I'm busy as hell and my job sucks or what? Like, what is keeping me from doing that thing? What is making me sick, right? And these are the things I feel like um, Bardugo brings out in this in this concept of, yeah, if you don't do this thing, you will become sick, right? But it's it's the construct, it's the world around them that is keeping them confined, right? Um, so I think that's something really um, we can identify with, obviously, right? And and I want to throw out there too, like with this is going to like shadow and bone, but like Alina was not using her power because she was holding on to this like memory of this, of, I can't remember his name right now, this person that she loved. And then, you know, um, with Jesper, it's like, Mal, thank you. With Jesper, it's like the memory of his mother, right? And this is what, this is what ultimately got her killed or whatever, you know, according to, to his dad. But um, it's just interesting how you're right. Like it's, it kind of calls back to their traumas in a lot of ways. Um, like why they're holding on to that, to not using that power, not not becoming their true selves. So I want to um, ask everyone this because we're all writers. And what would you have done different in writing the novel? And I want to preface this question in a way that not that what Lee did wrong, because I think all of us can agree Lee did this amazingly well and it was a fun read. And there's so many craft lessons to be learned in this book. But I think as writers, we each want to evoke something. This is why we write. So what do you think, if you were given the premise of the story, a heist, and a secondary world fantasy um, with the Grisha, how would you create your spin on it? And I'll take volunteers first before I... Billy Palmer. I just think... I think what she did that was super interesting is that for me, my magic is costly typically. And with, in her magic, it's the opposite. If you're not using the magic, you're it's costly. So I think that that's that reversal was really cool, but I know that I would have defaulted to the magic is costly and I would have gone way darker, probably a lot more teeth in the story, you know, um, (laughs) (laughs) some bone carving and stuff like that. But she even has that too. She has it all. I mean, she has the darkness and, and a lot in Crooked Kingdom as well. But um, so, yeah, just those just those things default to the magic being costly and then darker. Uh, Marshall. Yeah, I, I'm with Billy. I would have made it darker just because I like my fantasy dark and bloody and gritty. And I, I, I don't go as far as the teeth thing, but I, I, you know, again, I haven't read your teeth stuff and, and I'm in with that, you know. But for me, like, honestly, like I love this book. I love the series, um, but I typically don't write YA either. So I know that there's a limit when it comes to uh, what you what you can do with the darkness level, I guess is what I should say, like as far as um, how bloody and gruesome it can be, right? I mean, you can't, I don't know. I, 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 is that Does that make sense what I'm saying? I would have made it darker. Yeah, it does make sense. I would say... That's starting to change. I've noticed and it. It's and really that's why interesting. I, that's why when I said it, I was like, but is that still true? But 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 personally, like I would have been like it maybe in the detail of of some of the things that played out, and maybe I would have gone mm-hmm. a 
down some of those darker alleys and explored some of those other gangs just to throw some more shit at the at the group, you know what I mean? Kind of stuff. But that's yeah. that's kind of where I'm at with that. I could see a lot more dismemberment coming from your story. Uh, absolutely. Especially when you got you assassins, know? rate the assassins. Yeah. Come on now. A hundred percent. Um, Gabe. I mean, the only thing that I'm thinking that broke my suspension of disbelief, it's a very small thing. It was literally the only thing, the age of the characters. Uh, and I know, I mean, being YA and I've seen this, as many times we've talked in our group, in the name of the wind, half of what I didn't believe was Kvothe being so good at everything at 15 years of age. And this w- is the thing. At, in- at which one? Who? Kaz? No, in, I was, uh, another story. In the name oh, of the wind. Story. I mean, in the here, name of the wind. Every character was very young and being very, like, hyper-competent in the things that they were good at. That was literally the only thing that I would I would change. Just making them, I was useless at 16 or 17. So, right. I have a counterpoint to that, but we'll get to that Can in I, a minute. Um, Nick? I want to I challenge that too. What Gabe just mm-hmm. said. Go right um, ahead. You've got to think and consider the world that they're in and what makes them at that age. So, yeah, mm-hmm. me and you at 15 and 16, we were barely, barely in high school figuring out, you know, math. Them at 15 and 16 have experienced war, trauma, many other things. Look at Inej and her life, you know. I think the world-building aspect makes me believe that. And that's where I challenge you on it is the world that they live in is forcing Mm -hmm. them to grow and mature in ways that we can't relate to, which is why I like it. Yeah, that's true. Because mm-hmm. I, I look at my kids now, and I look at how I grew up, and just that generational difference on our competencies, on what was a priority when I was a kid versus what's a priority now. You know, it, there's there's a difference. So I, I would I would challenge you and look at the world a little bit more, especially with Quoth um, and the things that he had to experience before he came great mm-hmm. at everything, and why that's a good motivational factor. Well, you had a point to that, too. I love it. I do, but I want to go to Marie. I want to hear, Marie, what would you, uh, how would it come out if you were writing it? I mean, it would probably be a lot more all over the place, let's be honest. (laughs) 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 That's not better. Um, I think there was one part that was challenging for me to, to read, and it was actually chapter two. Um. This is an Inej chapter, and it's Inej. This is our first introduction to some of the main characters of the book. And it's in her POV, and we're walking up to a big group of, like, thief bros. (laughs) And we know that Kaz is the leader because she talks about that. And obviously, you know, they have a a relationship of some kind, like a professional relationship. Um. But everyone else just like blended together in that chapter um, to me. Um, And it was hard for me to parse like who was important. What did I need to be paying attention to? Um, And one of the people in that chapter is Jesper, one of the main characters that I think almost all of us found as like one of our favorite people in the book. Um, So I think what was cool about that is that we got to see more of the world building and part of it was to show that, okay, these, these bands of 
you know, thieves and lowlife sort of are, um, they're big. It's not just, you know, Kaz and the like three people that he needs for the evening. He's got like a whole group of people. The dregs is bigger um, than just, just that. And it gave more uh, grounding, I guess, to the world building. I think for me, it just created a challenge in terms of like, what should I be paying attention to as a reader? Yeah. Um, for me, I think it would be like super gay. <laughs> I would have way more homosexuals in there. Yeah. Like, I think the straights would be like the minorities, you know, like there's that one straight token couple, you know, everyone else would be gay, gay, lesbian, bisexual, you know, there'd be a lot of gay stuff going on. I mean, it's in my novel that I'm writing now. There's assassin drag queens and there's AI, um, drag shows where they dress up as humans and it's exaggerated and wonderful. Um, and there's gays all around gay, 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 gay. So, you know, if anyone wants to know what my agenda is, that's my agenda. Um, but I also, I think also, and I'm writing this, this is why I picked this book for my writing group to do. And this is why I wanted to discuss it. Cause this is one of my most favorite books ever. I would also make it in space. Like I made my book, you know? Um, so I think um, what's interesting to me also is I started, my novel started as a short story just as I was reading this and I didn't intend for it to turn into like this novel and then like just ideas exploded. So I uh, want to ask um, what surprised you the most in Six of Crows that you didn't think you were going to love, but you did. Um, go ahead, Nick. Nina I, and her relationship with Matthias. Um, I'm partial to Matthias because he's, he's the military guy of the group. He's the strong one. Um, so there's parts of him I easily identify with, but I didn't like Nina for a while there. It's there, it's out there. But I really, really grew to like her, especially towards the end and the relationship. Um, and really rooting for them going forward as a friendship or whatever. I'll ship them. That's fine. I want them as a couple. Um, I love it. Billy? And we need more romance in this book. I don't know about that. Uh, Billy, go ahead. Um, I didn't think that I would end up loving Wylan, uh, as much as I did, but I, but I ended up loving Wylan. Um, and then the, the final scene, uh, not the final scene, but the big sort of like, uh, climax with Nina and, um, you know, big spoiler alert, taking the param and, and just being amazing. Like I just, I, I, it was like surprising yet inevitable and, um, and I and I didn't think that I would love the scene as much as I did, but I but I absolutely did. It was excellent and amazing. I love that, um, yeah. Marshall. I'm just gonna piggyback on what Billy said. I I wasn't the biggest fan of Wyland in the beginning. I was like, what is this character? What are we doing? Like, I love everybody else so much, and like, then I was like, okay, I love this kid. Love this kid, and I got to see what happens with him and what's going on. And then like later, it's even more amazing to avoid spoilers, but I mean, especially um, later, it's just, it's just phenomenal. And like, that surprised me a lot. Cause I was like, when I got, because again, I think Marie brought it up in the last episode, we don't get a POV from him um, in this book. And 
I was like, so why are we all talking about him? Like, why does it matter that much? Like, who cares? Like, I don't know. I just found myself kind of saying that because I love the other characters so much more. Right. And then to fall in love with this character later really got me. So that surprised me. And I'm going to, we're going to go to Marie, but then I want to ask Marshall a question. Uh, Marie, go ahead. I, I just wanted to piggyback on the like Wylan love train here. Um, <laughs> there's this moment when um, Jesper says, you know, what do you like? Music, numbers, equations. They're not like words. They, they don't get mixed up. If only you could talk to girls in equations, <laughs> just girls. <laughs> and I'm like screaming at this point. Like, oh, yeah. the book. I was, that was like my favorite Wyland moment ever. Oh yeah. I love it. Um, Gabe. Yeah. I think I'm going to go for the same thing. The, but mostly about the reveals about Wyland and his yeah. past and the moment his father says all those things. And we get to know that that was Wyland. I actually said, you motherfucker. <laughs> thinking of the father he was willing like he didn't care that his son was in that boat like that was such a good thing and then when we know that wyland was all the time with jesper in the boat yeah. that was one yeah. of my favorite moments of the whole book and one of the things that i want to see developed so 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 much the relationship i was dying for it i mean for me what surprised me the most was how much I liked Kaz because I was not into Kaz at first. I thought he was like, I was like, got some emotional issues. But when we get to the emotional issues and with Jordy and the scene about him getting sick and Kaz being in the sea of bodies, I suddenly saw this sensitive soul had to really build up a lot of, um, a lot of walls just so he could survive and that he's probably the most tender hearted out of them. The one who's so ruthless is the one who has the biggest heart. And so this is what I want to ask Marshall and I'm going to ask Marshall and then we're all going to talk about it. I don't have this written down in the outline. Marshall, when I recommended this book and you read it and then you found out it was young adult because mm-hmm. you didn't know that at first. I didn't. Tell me how that changed your perception of young adult. Uh, so, boy, I see why you're asking this question. So, yeah, I hadn't read a lot of young adult up until that point, uh, honestly. And and we had, you know, we had this conversation. You're like, okay, we'll read six of you, you know, read six of crows. And you knew that I hadn't read a lot of young adult, but you didn't tell me it was young adult. And I read this book, and then I'm like fucking this book is amazing, dude. What the hell? And then, and then you told me that I was like, holy shit. Okay. So what that meant for me, and this is something that my, my wife actually in the first novel I wrote said, like, you could write this as a young adult. Cause I had younger characters. Right. Um, but of course I went too dark with it, of course, and whatever I was saying earlier, but, um, but yeah, it, it, it opened up, it opened up the kind of the possibilities of what a young adult novel is and could be. Um, especially like, I don't know why I had this weird idea of what young adult was and why I was turned off to it. Maybe it was just because it's like, Oh, young adult, I'm not a young adult. So why am I reading this? But, and since then I've read, read a bunch. And so, yeah, um, I could write it and I would love to write it. And I fell in love with this book. So I blame you, but also thank you as well. So (laughs) anytime, anytime, um, (laughs) 
And I'd like to open it up to um, everyone, really. I, I'm having, I'm going to, I'm going to just go on a limb. Marie, have you, do you read a lot of young adult? Um, a, a bit. Yeah. Um, but I think with this whole question about like dark in kidlet, um, that I guess why is, I guess, technically the upper end of. Um, so my, I think probably a lot of you have had conversations about this with, but my like childhood obsession that's landed throughout my entire life was Animorphs, which like is middle grade. So it's even younger. And there's like in the first book, there's like cannibalism and death of, I don't know how many people there's lots of murder. There's like body dysmorphia there. Like the whole book is, just the first book is already just as dark as this, if not, maybe more so. And so I think for me, that wasn't a hurdle. Um, I think for me, my assumption about YA is that it's going to be going along at a quick pace, um, that it's going to be really engaging. Um, I'm also usually expecting there to be romance plots, which is like not usually my favorite thing, but um, it's okay. So that's the stuff I was expecting. And I think most of that kind of panned out here. You know, what's interesting though. I felt like the romances weren't like, they were very believable. Yeah. And I, and I liked them actually in this much better than, than most of the time. I I think that's, I don't know if it's because they were just very much like B plot type stuff, but um, they weren't the focus. yeah. Yeah. So I thought that worked out well. I'm going to contrast this with another young adult book, which is Cassandra Clare's The Mortal Instruments. The romance between Jace and Clary, if anyone's read it, I felt like, and I love those books. This isn't a diss on Cassandra at all, because I love those books. Um, the interesting thing is, is, though, is that their romance felt very um, romancy, young adult, very angsty, very in the heat, where the romances with everyone in um, the Six of Crows felt earned, felt believable, and they weren't. I yeah. looked at him and I fell in love, and I thought that was the biggest difference: the Six of Crows versus the Mortal Instruments. Um, so, Gabe, I want to go to you. Were you surprised, um, like it being young adult, and what were your thoughts about that? So, I'm going to be the foil here and tell the group that I learned that this was a YA on last episode. Like I had no idea this was a YA. No shit. No, okay. no That's idea. Amazing. When I read it, That's amazing. So last episode was like, holy shit, it is. Mm-hmm. And it's, and I think I held some of the same things that Marshall was saying. Like, yeah, I don't read YA anymore. Like that was my thought because I used to read a ton of it when I was a young adult. Um, but now like I gravitated more towards adult fantasy, like all the time. But reading this and now learning that it's YA, it's just, it's it's brilliant. Like it's, it feels very different to the things, and it's the things that you're saying, the focus on romance. Like I I like romance in stories, but in this it just felt, not the focus, but also one of my favorite parts of the book. Mm-hmm. Those little things, like the subtlety of the romance, mostly Wilden and Jesper. That was no, for me. So that's that's the only thing that I need now. Yeah. So mm-hmm. I think that was that was really surprising learning that it was a YA. So amazing. And Billy, what are your thoughts? 
Um, so I read, I read some YA. I, I'm not like exclusively a YA reader. I was just trying to think of like a lot of the YA books I've read recently. And, um, I discovered like the rain wild chronicles by Robin Hobb and, and read those, uh, dragon YA books. And then, um, I was waiting on the third, um, uh, Jade trilogy, um, book and delved into Fonda Lee's like, uh, YA backlist and stuff like that. Um, and, uh, I, I, so I knew going into this, that this was a YA book and I was totally fine with it. Um, and I think for me, and I'm not like an expert between, I'm not a genre expert or anything, but I feel like that with YA, the, it's like the traumas are more present or something like that. They're like closer in time. And so they're just like, they're just like sort of roiling over. Um, and, uh, it defines character so much more. Um, and I, and I read like the first, uh, book in Sarah J Ma- Moss, Mass, um, a game of I thrones, can't hear you. not a game of thrones, uh, glass, glass, glass. Of, I got it. I, I, a game <laughs> throne of, of glass. Oh my God. Throne of glass. Throne of glass. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. And it's just like those characters, I don't know. The characters are just sort of defined by what happened to them three years ago. You know what I mean? And, and I think that, that like, that's how it is that's how I'm reading it in a lot of ways. But anyways, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I, I loved that it was YA because it, um, again, it's just like a lot of that. It's just like the emotional stakes are so high compared to a lot of uh, adult books. I think a hundred percent. Nick, did you want to add anything? You did, you, did you hear the question? I did. You prepared me for this book ahead of time. because uh-huh. You had me read it so I could go over your novel when it's ready get a good idea mm-hmm. of what you were aiming for heist-wise. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you set the correct expectations for me ahead of time. So, I wasn't surprised by it. I do feel like, I don't know. I could see how would someone could say it's not a YA book. I think it flirts with it's that It's not line. a what? YA. Oh, yeah. It, it, it borders on that line. Yeah, I think it definitely um, borders that line. But we're seeing more and more YA be written for adults than actual young adults. And so I think this is yeah. like in that trend market where it's like, it can still fit in both, but yeah. Um, okay. So I just have two more questions and we're done. My, the first question of the two part question is what were your three craft takeaways from reading six of crows? Just three things off the top of your head um, that, are craft takeaways. And I'm going to start off with um, Gabe. Um, I would say, I mean, we talked about the world building and the subtlety and efficiency of how she does it. Like she's pulling character, world building, well, character setting and plot in the same sentence. But apart from that, I loved the way perspective is a big thing and how it's played out, both for, for the characters, like, Matthias and Nina, you can see the very opposite perspectives there. And uh, I think that was really, really well played in many things. The, the perspective of it's played for the setting, it's played for the plot and for the characters. That was incredible. Also, the set, the setting and escalation of stakes. Like we know perfectly well what every single character has got to lose or got to win. And how it shifts and morphs as the, as the story advances. Like, Kaz gives us the stakes of every character. 
but they develop and shift as everything advances. So I think that was also amazing, and I'm taking a ton of notes. I took a ton of notes while while reading this book. Yeah, uh, Billy. So I think um, I'm. My takeaways are just going to be things I think that I'm going to have to reread the book several times for to figure out how she did them. Um, and I think number one is her ability to withhold information in a way that was like really natural and not didn't feel like it just served, you know, the, the purposes of the plot. Like she was like Kaz withheld information for a reason every time, but he seemed to know so much more than we ever knew that he knew. Um, so I thought that was excellent. Um, her tension through dialogue and character difference, I think, uh, was really amazing through the whole story. Um, and I'm going to reread to just like figure out how she escalated scenes so well with, um, with just the conversations and just their, like, yeah, their disagreements with just basic philosophy about the world and stuff. It was just, it was pretty awesome. And then just seconding what Gabe said about world building. I mean, her, the way that she named things, the way that she had uh, different cultures sort of interwoven into these cities um, and uh, how real it all felt. And just a little like down to just like the specific, like, you know, pastries that they were eating and how it just felt like real um, the whole time. So these are the three things. I don't know how she did them, but I'm going to go back and reread all of her stuff again over and over to figure it out. Um, and Marie, what are your three uh, craft takeaways? Um, yes, to all that. Um, I think, you know, it's, it's easy for me as a pantser to look at the heist I'm working on right now and despair that it's not as neat and tidy as this, but to remember that, you know, this is the finished version. So I get to keep editing. And, um, I think one thing that was actually helpful for me was to see where she lines up the heist beats with something like three act structure beats. Cause it, it, maps onto it, but pushed back a bit. Um, and so that actually was some nice confirmation for me that some edits I was making in my story are probably on the right track. Um, and then off the structure sort of topic back on the character, um, just remembering that like those make sure that those relationships between the characters are just so fully realized. And especially if there's already a history between the characters um, you know, what can I do to make sure that that's clear and that it has room to grow? Because I think I tend to focus more on new character, like characters meeting each other and how those relationships develop. But I don't remember to develop as much and deepen as much those who already know each other when when the book starts. Uh, Marshall, did you want to your three biggest takeaways? Yeah, I don't know if I have three, but um, I, I want to go with all the things you guys said, um, obviously. But for me, uh, I love fantasy, uh, and the fantasy I grew up on uh, does the multiple POVs, right? Um, so for me, the craft element I would pick up from this is how do you balance those multiple POVs and get a distinct voice out of every single one, right? And that was the big thing for me. It's like, okay, so I'm head hopping. I'm bouncing around from these characters, and then when they meet up with other characters, those voices are still just as strong somehow. Right. Um, and then not only that, but melding that into the world building and having that secondary, that other character being Ketterdam being, you know, that setting. 
right? How, how do you balance all of that? And, and on top of that, make a heist out of it. Like, I mean, those things I just said would be something to strive for in a multiple POV fantasy novel on a base level, but then to throw uh, the intricacy, you know, the intricate um, planning that would have to be involved with a multiple POV heist and then pull off all of it. It's, it's, it's overwhelming thinking about it, honestly. And, and to be able to go back, like Billy said, how many, I mean, I've read this a couple of times, but it's like, all right, well, I still don't know how she did it. And, and I, I love writing multiple POVs into a story, but like, okay, but I'm also not telling a heist too. Like I got to plan a heist. Come on now. So like, you know, stuff like that, like kind of blows my mind a little bit. And so, yeah, those are the things I'm, I'm pulling out of this and why I love this book, why I recommend this book is because she's doing more things than most writers do, uh, you know, in one book, and, you know, and, and, and it's amazing. So yeah, I, I can learn a lot and I'm going to have to figure out how she did it. Maybe I'll ask her one day. Um, my, <laughs> um, takeaways are, um, her point of view. I do see how she did that. Um, because each point of view kept pushing the story forward and had a unique point of view to push the story forward. Each of them interwoven into each other and deepened those scenes and deepened the characters. That's first. The second thing that I really learned from reading the book was a lot of internal struggles for all the characters. She does this internal scene, external action, internal scene, external action. And there's a rhythm to those books. Um, to be fair, next, well, you've read the book like eight times. So yeah, well, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm just, teasing, I can't, buddy. I can't help it. Like I, I need to study it. Like I am studying a master. Um, the biggest thing, too, is um, the way that she describes things. The way that her description flows um, is really interesting to me and how she pairs it with dialogue. I don't know exactly how she's doing it, but I'm starting to see like, kind of like how she sets the scene, how she uses dialogue. I thought that was really interesting. And I feel like that's something that I really need to learn. Um, so I did have another question, but we can skip it. Um, my next question, we can talk about it later, everyone. Um, or in Discord. I'll, I'll mention it in Discord when this episode drops. I want to ask you as our final question of our final episode of the Six of Crows book club. Did Six of Crows inspire you to just keep writing marie yeah i mean i think it was really interesting what you said about it will that this was a hard book for lee to write and it's a it's a reminder to me that even when the words don't flow or when we run into hiccups or outright obstacles in our own writing that that final product can still be immensely fun for a reader. And it's not just like this beautifully crafted book. It is fun to read. So that was, that gives me a lot of hope and excitement for my own writing. I love it. Uh, Billy. Yeah. I think this book, it, it really inspires me to keep writing because of 
um, how awesome it is and, and just imagining being able to, to produce something like that. However, it is also ex- it, extremely humbling in a lot of ways because I think it's just so good and it, and it hooked me so much. It really reignited my love uh, as a reader, I think, more than a writer. Um, but again, it does, it does inspire me in a lot of ways to keep writing. Uh, Gabe? Oh, well, Billy and Marie said most of what I was thinking. And uh, I think a bit jumping off what Billy said in the humbling aspect of it, but it also, I feel the push and like to go and be better, to go and practice the things, not just like try them out in my book, like go focus on a thing that she's doing well and try to do it like elsewhere and then pull it into my, like my toolbox because there's, so many things mechanically done brilliantly. And uh, like, I don't know many of those things, like what those things are, but I would like, this is pushing me to learn them, like to see, dissect them and use them and give it, give more time to my story to make, to reach this level. And also like Marie was saying, it's, even if it's hard, even if you're suffering th- through your story, if you work enough at it, it's going to get to this level because I know, I mean, we can get to the, to that level. I mean, at least the people that I'm seeing here in my, on my screen. Absolutely. Yeah. Nick. Yeah. I'm going to kind of buddy up and march on this one and do character voices. Six of crows. So many unique voices, so many unique personalities. She really nailed it with that one and making sure each person was very distinct in their own way and did it in, did it in a positive way. And I say that coming off discussions from school where people were trying to use negative stereotypes to create a, neg- mm-hmm. uh, create a distinct voice. She did it in a very positive and uplifting way that, <clears throat> you know, it did justice to the characters and their background without, creating negative stereotypes, which I really appreciated. And did you, did it leave you with the sense that you wanted to keep writing? Like, did it make you want to go back and write? It made me want to go back and read. I, I, I think I, I reconnected with, with reading on this one than writing um, because I just loved her character so much and wanted more. So it definitely made me go pick up four other books. <laughs> I love it. And Marshall? Yeah. Um, for me, yeah, I don't know. Everything you guys say, it, it's, it's, I don't know if the word for me is, I think the word for me is dauntingly, like daunting. You know, like when you read this, it's like, I want to be able to do this, but it's a very daunting kind of challenge. But at the same time, I'm, I'm up for the challenge, right? And so that's the thing. It's like, okay, so, it's daunting. Yes. So if I break it apart and if I segment it in, in such a way, I might be able to dissect what she did and figure out how to do that in my own work and hopefully make it as compelling to, you know, to have someone like Nick be like, I'm just going to go back and read more because I just have to. Right. Um, and that's, and that's the goal, right? We're writing, we're writing for readers. And, and, and I think that's the thing that we have to, we have to understand as well. Um, that we, we're writing for ourselves, but also we're writing, we want to write compelling stories for people to consume and to have these conversations about. So yeah, it makes me want to write because I want people to have these conversations about my books at some point. 
Yeah, for me, I mean, I picked it. So yeah, it definitely makes me want to write. And um, on a personal note, I uh, met Lee a few times, but the last time I actually got to see her, she was actually in talks with Daniel Jose Older, who I also is like a literary hero. <laughs> and I um, never listened to that interview. Sorry, I'm sorry. Um, and I actually got up and asked her a question because, you know, when you're in the audience, and this is obviously pre pandemic, okay? Yeah. Um, and I asked her, you know, like, what was, I, I was like, I just finished a young adult novel, which I did, which is called The Halloween Chronicles. And um, I asked her, you know, like, did you ever think, that it was just too late for you because of age. And, you know, did it make you think that like, oh, I already should have arrived. And she said, you know, in our society, it fetishizes youth Mm -hmm. and these youth oriented things. And she says, and, you know, you know, my first book got published at like, you know, I think she was 37 And she said, and it was still great. And she goes, but what's been really great is that I was able to keep writing and that I able to grow my success. And she said, a good story is a good story, no matter when you write it. And that really stuck with me. And then afterwards, when I went up to get my book signed, she came around, she gave me a really big hug. And she was like, I I just can't wait to read your novel. So... Um, she's just someone to me who is genuine and I just love the world that she creates. And she really thinks, you know, um, Lee's commented on her first novel, um, shadow and bone was very heteronormative, very white. And she said, you know, I needed to look at like what I was internalizing. And if you read her now, she has gotten better with being diverse and not, and she even said this, she's not diverse to be diverse. She's writing the world as she knows it. Mm. And as she experiences it, because she lives in LA and she's traveled all over the world. So to me, she's just a really big source of um, inspiration and also what it means to the way she interacts with people, peers, upcoming writers, and her fans. She's gracious and kind and really she is someone who really thinks about what she's doing with purpose so that's our episode everyone awesome um i would just like to uh marie where can everyone find you on social media um yeah come find me at marieparks.com and because will you're gonna probably say this really fast again uh, if you're listening to this podcast and enjoy it, please support them on Patreon. They're awesome. Seriously. Aww. You get all kinds of great perks and you know you're supporting a great podcast. Ah, thanks, Marie. Thanks, Marie. Um, and talk to me. What's your book title? Uh, it's called Unrelenting. It's co-written with Jesse Honard, and it'll be coming out sometime in spring 2022 um, from Not A Pipe Publishing. Amazing. And we'll put that all in the show notes. And hopefully by the time this airs, it'll all be up. We'll be able to have a pre-order link and everything. Um, Gabe, where can everyone find you on social? So I'm on Twitter and Instagram under GF Salmeron and Gabriel F. Salmeron. And Instagram, it's mostly knives. 
And on Twitter, <laughs> it's going to be a lot of tweets about dogs. Because I have seven dogs and you're going to get to meet them all. Oh, Lance. Um, <laughs> and Billy, where are you on social? I'm on Twitter at B.A. Palmer underscore rights. And then uh, BillyAllenPalmer.com. I love it. And all of our socials are on the links. Yeah. And Marshall, anything else? No. Nah, uh, thanks for thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, just keep writing. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. You can find us at justkeepwriting.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Feel free to reach out to any of us on our social medias. And please jump in our Just Keep Writing Discord channel. Links to all of that is in the show notes. Lastly, please support our show by going to patreon.com slash justkeepwriting. We offer daily writing prompts, early access to podcast episodes, and much more. Thanks for listening, and just keep writing.